Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Wednesday, December 5th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I was asked to do an ad, a little thank you holiday thing for Stitcher, one of the fine services where you can hear this podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Overcast. I use Overcast. Whatever you're listening to now, I'm sure that would work. We do have a proof of that right now, sample size of one, but it seems like that thing will also work. I do not actually know why it's derogore to mention every kind of podcast apps as you're listening to a podcast. It's like using a sticker to advertise a tangerine on the skin of a banana. You're already into the banana. There's also, I guess, the tangerine out there. So I don't know, or, or maybe I'm just, you know, in the middle of doing plugs. I don't know if you know this, but I have a book out. If you want to get a present for someone who likes hypothetical sports stories, it's called Upon Further Review. It's on Amazon. It's number three in the category of sports and outdoors, sociology of sports. Want to know what the number one book in the category of sociology of sports is? Sex at Dawn, about having sex. Nothing about sports, unless you do it right. Okay, anyway, they asked me to do this ad for Stitcher. And the ad ended with, happy holidays and happy new year. And I thought, no, no, the holidays in happy holidays, those holidays are Christmas and new year, new year's Eve. Those are the holidays. Now you might be saying, no, Mike, what about Hanukkah? Hanukkah is a holiday. And when people say happy holidays, they mean Hanukkah. And I have to tell you when this ad airs, Hanukkah will be done. Hanukkah is half done. We're at the Uka in Hanukkah as we speak. My friend Lichman used to always say when he was at college, he'd go home for break. So college would end, I don't know, you know, December 15th, let's say. And he'd say, okay, bye to his Christian friend. And Lichman, being a nice guy, would say, Merry Christmas. Being a nice guy who grew up, you know, in a Christian nation. And then the the, the friend, the Christian would say, and happy Hanukkah because he was trying to be nice. And Lichman would say, most years, actually, Hanukkah ended a couple of weeks ago, thereby insulting the Jew. So what I'm saying is Hanukkah has happened. It's happening now. In the future, anything past a couple days from now, hold your happy Hanukkahs. Don't be that Christian. And don't be that Lichman. Say happy holidays. I know there's a war on holidays, but I'm telling you, we need to say it. And we need to, like, as with any war, we need all of our forces united. For happy holidays to work, you cannot separate out New Year's, New Year's Eve, New Year. Some people say New Year's. That's like saying library a little bit, isn't it? Okay. I know what some of you are thinking. 2% according to the statistics. 
What about Kwanzaa? And I say 2% because my research reveals that 2% of Americans celebrate Kwanzaa. The stat's a little old. It's from a retail foundation. I was looking into the question of how popular is Kwanzaa, and this question seems to have stopped being asked in 2012. Around 2011 and 2012, there were many articles, or a few articles, and an interview on NPR asking just how popular is Kwanzaa, and now we've stopped asking the question. Uh, this could be for one of three reasons. Kwanzaa is incredibly popular. How can anyone ask? Kwanzaa is so unpopular, no one even knows to ask. Or the third one, it's just not the kind of thing we like to bring up anymore. I think it's probably that. So I tried to do, I'm a curious guy. I tried to do my own research. I went into Google Trends, which at least will tell you how many people are actually searching for Kwanzaa. And I learned a couple things. One, Google Trends tells me that searching for Kwanzaa, most popular in Delaware. Look, I hate to engage in broad stereotypes, but can we just say it? It's what everyone knows. Delaware loves Kwanzaa. I'm just saying out loud what you've been thinking. Delaware loves themselves some Kwanzaa. But Kwanzaa has gotten less popular, at least according to search terms. It was, I don't know what these unit of measurements were, but it was in the hundreds uh, in 2004 and 2005 when Google Trends started. And lately it's been in the 60s. It seems like people are searching for Kwanzaa less and less. Maybe they just know how to do Kwanzaa right and they don't need to search for it. I did feel a little bit bad. I, I do feel like I have to address Kwanzaa and I have these questions about Kwanzaa. But someone listening to this might be saying, why are you picking on Kwanzaa? Let Kwanzaa be Kwanzaa. Why do you have to compare Kwanzaa to these other big holidays with, you know, thousands of years head start? Kwanzaa, it's like the WNBA of holidays. I mean, it's good. You're glad it exists, right? You'd have to be a monster to be against it. You always hear about people who like it. And of course, the real thing they have in common Both are crazy popular in Delaware. What? You don't know about Elena Deladon? Blue Hen? Yes, she is quite popular. On the show today, I check in on the funeral of George H.W. Bush. Issued many a Kwanzaa proclamation in his time, that is true. But first, a subject that I strive for and maybe every once in a while achieve, probably more so in my own mind than in yours, a look at wit, how we use it and what it means. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, he got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What's the difference between a serial monogamist and my next guest, James Geary? (laughs) One pairs for fun, the other has a flair for puns. Okay, I'll admit it, that is a chiasmus, you know, the frontal lobotomy, bottle in front of me variety, and I could throw a thousand of them at you, but then there'd be a chiasmus miasma. Anyway, James Geary is the author of Wit's End, What Wit Is, How It Works, and Why We Needed It. He has an interesting background. He's like an expert on journalism, but he also likes words. (laughs) Hello, James. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So you convinced me, though I didn't need convincing. I mean, I'm a two-time host of the Punder Dome. I love, <laughs> yes. I love, I love puns and wit. But you convinced me that wit is more important than something clever or even something defensible, because so often we're asked to say, as you note, oh, no pun intended, or sorry yeah. for the pun. You say that wit and puns and wordplay and visual wordplay pretty much is the most exalted form of thought. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Defend that statement, sir. <laughs> well, I never I never really understood why puns got such a bad rap. And because I think puns are like the the most profound expression of wit. Yeah. Because wit at its essence, it's not necessarily in the f- first instance about being funny. It's about making surprising and novel connections. So when you make a pun, and as a former host of Punderdome, you are the resident expert in these. When you're making a pun, you're taking information from two different words that sound alike but have different meanings, and you're combining them, you're synthesizing them, and you're creating something new, you know, that creates delight and surprise in the, in the listener. Or, or anger or, or in anger some and listeners. depression yes. and groaning <laughs> and sometimes violence ensues. Right. But that, even the, uh, the, the worst puns are the best yeah. because they are taking uh, associations way, that are very, very remote you're and right. bringing them together. And by the way, if we're going to talk about violence and sues, this brings us to George Custer. So <laughs> the, okay. And speaking of puns getting a bad rap, you engage in just that bad rap or at least some oh, version it thereof. wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you explore the topic in a creative and uh, somewhat schizoid way where every <laughs> chapter is told via a form of wit. Uh, How did that unlock the subject for you? Well, I originally tried a conventional approach to the book, so I sat down and started to write about wit. And I can tell you, it didn't go so well. I thought it was terrible, and I really was panicking about whether I would even be able to write this book. Because, as you know, trying to explain a joke is the surest way to kill it. Mm-hmm. So my son was in drama school when I was writing the book, and uh, he, we were chatting one day, and he told me they were going to watch some Buster Keaton films in his class to, to talk about wit. And I'm a huge Buster Keaton fan, silent film comedian from the 19-teens and 20s. And our the kids... The fact that we even have to say that. He yeah. was just about the most famous person Absolutely. in America at the time. Yeah. And a hugely innovative uh, cinematic pioneer. Right. So. But our kids grew up watching Buster Keaton. So I said to my son, why don't you tell your teacher that I'm writing a book about wit and I'll come down and do a talk. And I have this little talk show that I do about the, the book. And I did it for the class. And while I was there with a, bu- a room full of aspiring actors, I realized I was going about it completely the wrong way. I can't write a book about wit. I have to write or try to write a book that is witty. So I have to show what wit is rather than tell. So that's how I ended up writing a chapter on 
uh, verbal repartee as a dramatic dialogue, as a scene from a play, essentially. There's a chapter written in rap, because rap, I think, is really linguistically very inventive and witty. It can be, yes. It can be, yeah, yeah at its at, best. At its best. Tell me the difference between, so it's not only words, you talk about Buster Keaton, you talk about the Marx Brothers a lot, and they have verbal wit, and they also have uh, physical gags. Tell me the difference between a sight gag that you would consider to be witty and a sight gag that is funny but not of the witty variety. Yeah. So there's the classic sight gag, guys walking down the street, doesn't see a banana peel on the on the sidewalk, steps on it, slips, falls down. That's very funny. That's a Pratt fall. That's slapstick. Very humorous. It's not witty. Mm-hmm. It's not witty because there's no twist. There's no kind of intellectual layer on top of it. There's no reversal. There's no kind of intelligence at work. So the witty version of that gag, guy's walking down the street, sees a banana peel on the sidewalk, steps over it, continues walking, and as he turns around to look back at the banana peel to admire his accomplishment, he falls through an open manhole cover. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's witty because it has that second layer it goes beyond the kind of expected, obvious, cliched punchline and uses like an a intellectual twist that is actually a comment, makes some kind of social critique because the guy is so pleased with himself that he stops paying attention and that's his downfall. So you see that in the Marx Brothers, in Vaudeville, in Buster Keaton, and I have to say the wittiest cartoon in the world, Wiley, Coyote, and the Roadrunner. Yes. Um, lots and lots of visual, really sophisticated visual wit. And so that... Reminds me that for all good comedy, but tell me how it applies to wit. It is good to have structure and then playing off the structure is what gives it its appeal. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's that's how that's how jokes work. You set up a structure and you kind of meticulously set it up. And that's it's you know, you're 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 doing the setup when you're telling a joke. And then you bring in this twist at the end. But you have to, because the, the human brain is always looking for patterns and things. And where patterns are incomplete, the brain will kind of fill it in. So when you're telling a joke, you're giving a certain set of information, but you leave certain things blank or you leave certain things ill-defined. Mm-hmm. And then once you get people to buy into that structure, then you give the reversal. And that's the joke. So you see this in what are called garden path sentences. Um, Oh, I love this. Yeah. Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. (laughs) Which is good. Works on two levels. (laughs) Yeah. So the first half of the sentence sets up an expectation and the second half completely subverts it and gives you something completely different. And that's what creates that jolt in your mind of getting the punchline. And also, I think what's really cool about wit is it's sort of like a mental stimulant because it's like solving a problem or, 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 or solving a riddle. And when you figure it out, you get a little jolt of dopamine and it's pleasurable. And I think that's part of the good feeling that people have when they laugh at a joke. Do you now, when you hear a witty statement or a pun, are you a taxonomist? Do you know to what category that pun belongs? Uh, yeah, if I thought about it, but yeah. I try not to think about it too much. because If you want to enjoy yourself. Yeah, yeah. you want to be in the moment and you just want to go with it. And as part of the the talk that I do about my book, I have a pun competition. Mm-hmm. So it's like a little mini punderdome uh, as part of my talk. And I think we tend to think of like wit as like this really remote thing that only really smart people have. But everybody is witty. Everybody can make puns. Everybody gets puns. And the reason I do this pun competition is to prove that. Did you look into, are there any puns in American Sign Language? 
Do you know? Oh my gosh, that's a great idea. I'm sure there must be. Yeah. Because I'm sure they use visual metaphors for, yeah. for some words and you could, if you got a metaphor, you've got a pun. I never, I didn't look into that. But, but I do great... wonder, there is also the aspect of timing and it might, there might be something about timing that throws things off. Because in your book, there's a lot about Chinese mm-hmm. and how, I think because the language is, uh, there are different, so many different shades of meanings with words and also the written language can yeah. have hidden meanings in it. So you talk about, what is it with the, the fruit? Fruit language. Fruit <laughs> language. What is that? So fruit language, this is like to do with Tiananmen Square. One of the... Uh, Politburo leaders was asked if he favored attacking the demonstrators. And he said, I'm sure justice will prevail. Yeah. And that's fruit language because it's general. It's a kind of big open category. And depending on what happens, he could say, yes, I always favored attacking the demonstrators or no, I was always against. And the reason it's called fruit language is banana is specific and And prune is specific, but fruit is general category. Right. And is there something about the word fruit there in Mandarin, I guess it would be, that lends itself or that also applies to the notion of generality or is it just a straight up analogy? No, it's just a it's just a metaphor, an analogy. And it's true not just of Chinese politicians, but of any politician when you hear them speaking in those kind of vapid, empty generalities. Oh, yeah. But what happens in the in Chinese because the because of censorship online they, if they're talking about someone who's been arrested or someone who's been uh, detained, or if they're talking about some controversial subject in China, the censors will identify on social media, the censors identify the Chinese character that is related to whatever they're talking about. And they'll, they'll make sure that anytime that character appears, it disappears. Mm-hmm. So you can't tweet about it. So what the Chinese do is they take a character that's different, but has the same sound, the same pronunciation. So basically, they'll just keep punning. And then the censors will realize, oh, now they're punning on that character. So we have to eliminate the character and the pun. And then they'll make a new pun. And on and on it goes. So they talk about May 35th, uh, June 4th was the, the date of Tiananmen Square. But any reference to June 4th was immediately zapped. So people started referring to May 35th, which yeah. is four days after the end of May, <laughs> June 4th. And so that's really, that's what I mean about wit being just like everybody has it and everybody can do it because that's not like an orchestrated thing. People just spontaneously start making puns on prescribed words and everybody understands what they're referring to, even though as the puns get further and further away from the original term, they become more and more outlandish. So I think that's a really cool way um, to see wit at work in a, in a population and Wit as a kind of subversive, also a subversive kind of intelligence. Do you have, I'm sure so many of these puns and examples of wit are beloved by you and possibly even your babies, but are there a couple (laughs) that are so divine and complex that you grew to respect them? After discovering a hundred, there were two or three that just seemed so beautiful. Yeah. And I have to go back to uh, Buster Keaton. Okay. And what's great about him is his wit, he never says a word. So uh, it's a beautiful demonstration of, um, you know, wit doesn't have to be verbal. It can be visual. It can be physical. And I guess my, one of my favorites of his is he's uh, just built this house with his, his, his new bride. And it's one of those mobile homes. And they're trying to transport it to where they're going to live. Mm-hmm. And it gets stuck on a train track. And it's stuck there in the middle of the train track. And the big train is, you see it in the distance, barreling down the track. 
And they're like, oh, my God, the house we just built and, you know, where we're going to start our new lives together is about to be destroyed. So they kind of step off to the side and they're bracing for the impact. And the train goes right by the house because it's on the next track. <laughs> so they're all celebrating and jumping up and down. And it's a wide shot. So you see the, the house in a wide screen. And just as they're celebrating, a train coming in the opposite direction goes right through the house. <laughs> so... That's like a wily coyote-ish type, yeah. uh, beautiful example of <laughs> of wit that is reversing your your you. It's you're led to a place where you're led to expect a certain outcome, and then suddenly the wit comes in and and reverses it. Yeah. So Buster Keaton, I think, probably is one of the wittiest people that ever walked the face of the earth. James Geary is the author of Wits and What Wit Is, How It Works, and Why We Need It. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And now, the funeral today of George H.W. Bush reinforced for me two notions that I have. One, man, do I hate pomp and ceremony. The whispered announcers, and now the remains are being transported. That said, I do like eulogies. I would watch a eulogy network. A well-done eulogy doesn't have to be of a famous person. It's really thrilling. You know, because of eulogies, I don't even hate funerals. I'm not a monster. I miss the deceased. And of course, there's some very sad categories, a young person, a person with young children. That's, of course, devastating. But I have often found myself at a funeral of a person whose time had come and just reveling in the information I found about them and also what the speakers were telling me about themselves and what they value. There are a few times that we take the time to dedicate ourselves to a serious contemplation about what's essential in life. I think we don't consider it or we're so hurried that we don't stop. We probably have different definitions. But what funerals do is they kind of codify and reflect back to us what life, what the meaning of a person's life is all about. Our values are not reflected in social media posts. They're not reflected in the words that we take as pledges or the anthems we sing. The values are reflected in the traits that people emphasize at a funeral. Yes, you'll always get the pro forma, he loved his family, she was respected at work, but it's the extra ones that pop out. And if they're said over and over again, a clearer picture of the person can emerge. It adds up to what that person was. And in general, the sum total of all the eulogizing going on really does amount to what we want a person to be. George W. Bush's eulogy for his dad was sweet. It wasn't grand, it wasn't particularly eloquent. George W. Bush we're talking about after all, but I did learn some things. For instance, George H.W. and Barbara and even little George W. very early when George was very young and they moved to Texas, they shared a bathroom with prostitutes or this was how Bush put it. Ladies of the night, harlots, painted women, courtesans. I have never heard that before. It is true. I did some research. This is from an ABC profile of Barbara Bush. Soon afterwards, she, her husband George, and their two-year-old son, George W., were living in a cramped Odessa duplex next to a pair of mother-daughter prostitutes with whom they shared a Jack and Jill bathroom. And I would imagine on occasion a Jack and Jill and John bathroom. It's good. It's good that I fact-check that because often in a funeral, the mythic gets presented as the real. A story is tweaked or it's changed 
or it changed in the teller's mind, all to improve the anecdote. This began happening as soon as it was announced that the former president had died. On Sunday, Arnold Schwarzenegger was on the CNN program State of the Union talking about all the times that he and George H.W. Bush cavorted at Camp David. But he was exhausting uh, <laughs> because we were doing sports from morning to night. We were doing skeet and trap shooting and horseshoe, uh, horseshoe throwing and uh, working out with the weights and doing uh, volleyball, which is volleyball against the wall. I just want to stop here to compliment the former governor. For a man of an Austrian accent, that is a hard phrase to say, is it not? Volleyball is like volleyball without the wall. Good job. But he continued. Uh, but it was wonderfully out of control. And of, co- of course, we crashed into Barbara Bush, who broke her leg then after that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Arnold Schwarzenegger broke Barbara Bush's leg? Why had I not heard this? This was no trollop neighbor back in 1948. You'd have thought this would be known. Here's the thing. I looked up the reporting from the time. 1991, New York Times. President Bush's wife, Barbara, broke her left leg this morning when she hit a tree while sledding on an icy hill at the presidential retreat in Camp David, Maryland. The accident occurred when Mrs. Bush lost control of a saucer-type sled. She doesn't know why she didn't bail out. She just held on, and the next thing she knew, there was a tree. Okay, was the tree a strong Austrian man? Was this a cover-up? Is Schwarzenegger lying now? If he did collide with Barbara Bush, did he then deliver one of his signature action hero lines? Consider that a divorce. On the next Slow Burn Season 3, a tree, Mr. Universe, and a handsome woman who wasn't afraid to speak her mind. I think what happened is Schwarzenegger conflated his wild ride with Mrs. Bush's saucer incident. It would seem. Or maybe it was just making things up. I think that might have happened in this anecdote from the generally charming former Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson. And then, of course, one night the four of us went to see Michael Crawford singing the songs of Andrew Lloyd Webber. All four of us were singing as we went back to the White House. Don't cry for me, Argentina. (laughs) And tidbits from Phantom of the Opera and other magic of Webber. And a few days later, he's getting hammered by the press for some extraordinarily petty bit of trivia. And suddenly he sings out, Don't cry for me, Argentina. (laughs) The press then wrote that he was finally losing his marbles. Out of curiosity, I did some research. What was this minor press kerfuffle that he responded to by quoting an Argentine diva? Now, That never happened. The press wasn't after him for anything. What was happening was it was 1992. He wasn't doing so well. He was campaigning in New Hampshire, and he was giving a speech to the Liberty Mutual Insurance employees of Dover. It was a long speech, and at the end, not because of press questioning, just he kind of talked himself into this cul-de-sac, and this is what he said. Somebody said to me, you know, we prayed for you over there. That was not just because I threw up on the prime minister of Japan either. Where was he when I needed him? And I said this. I don't know whether any ministers from the Episcopal Church are here. I hope so. But I said this to him. You're on to something there. You can't be president of the United States if you don't have faith. Remember Lincoln? going to his knees in times of trial, in the Civil War, and all that stuff, you can't be. You can't be. And we are blessed. Don't feel sorry for, don't cry for me, Argentina. So is just George Bush being a doofus and a poor communicator, unprompted by some burdensome aspect of public service. Does make for a pretty good anecdote, though. 
The funeral was a collection of pretty good anecdotes and sometimes also pretty true anecdotes about a man who was mostly good and sometimes true. Depending on who you subscribe to on Twitter, there has either been a whitewashing of the legacy of George H.W. Bush or an unfair attack on the man for whom the word decency seems to be rightly applied. In reading through speeches he gave back in the 80s and 90s and stances he took, he, he tried to be tough. He slammed liberals, liberals like Ted Kennedy, he would say. He portrayed himself as the decider, that word that his son would come to use. He took great credit for the Gulf War. He made a series of policy choices that were the 1988 to 1992 definition of center-right, which, depending on which podcast you subscribe to, is either weak sauce or a crime against humanity. He was the establishment, and he kept the establishment established. And I like sitting in contemplation of him and his era for about an hour and a half, and then I walked away from the TV into a world that bore little resemblance to the one he presided over. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who have booked their Feast of the Epiphany tickets for South Dakota. Oh, they love the Feast of the Epiphany in Grand Forks. TJ Raphael, Slate senior producer, always spends Geography Week in Nebraska. Pretty much the, the hub of Geography Week, specifically the Nebraska-Missouri border. They love geography there. The Gist. You know, speaking of wit... Sometimes the wittiest things are the puns we don't try. I'll give you an example. On the show yesterday, I talked all about dogs and Ruth Graham's piece on uh, the dog, Sully H.W. Bush. And my friend and colleague, Josh Levine, desperately wanted someone to make a reference to the intellectual bark web. And I would not do it then. And I think you know why. Oom peru da peru du peru. And thanks for listening.